Well, kia ora koutou, everyone, and welcome to The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey uh, with the Kaka. Unfortunately, co-host Peter Bale um, can't be with us today because we've got some technical issues, but we shall plough on and cover the week's news the best we can. Um, it's been a, another wild week after last week's dramas with the Prime Minister resigning and um, plenty happening in the worlds of our political economy and uh, with what's happening with geopolitics and the global economy. So at 10 past five, we'll have Robert Patman join us from uh, the University of Otago, our regular um, special guest uh, commentator on global affairs. And uh, we'll get to talk about what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment. Um, for those people who love their tanks, uh, it's been a big week for tanks. And we'll talk about that, what it means for Ukraine. We've also had the... Uh, um, uh, decision by the people who run the doomsday clock uh, that they're going to take it a few more seconds closer to midnight. So it's now only 90 seconds from midnight. That's the closest it's ever been to their estimate of the end of uh, things. So um, that is certainly something uh, we'll keep an eye on. And uh, elsewhere in the global economy, we've got the US Federal Reserve with a really big decision next week on what it does with interest rates. It looks like now, because inflation is coming off the ball in the United States, we're only going to get a 25 basis point hike there. And uh, that will set the tone, no doubt, for our own Reserve Bank, which doesn't meet again to decide interest rates until February the 22nd. Remember, they haven't spoken to us since November the 23rd. Lots going on since then. Back then, we were expecting a 75 basis point rise, but this week we got information about our own inflation. Uh, it was actually 7.2% annual inflation rate in the December quarter, and that is um, uh, certainly uh, uh, going to take some of the pressure off the Reserve Bank and is is going to mean, according to the markets at least, that uh, we're more likely to have a 50 basis point hike. This week, we got not just the CPI numbers, but some fresh um, business confidence numbers. And we expect to talk to Finn Robinson, the economist from the ANZ, um, after 5.30 today. And uh, we are also going to be talking to... Um, one of us, if you like, uh, Susan St. John is a subscriber to the Kaka and often uh, is a viewer uh, on on the Hoon. But we wanted to talk to Susan uh, late in the hour about this debate the government's having internally about what to do with working for families, how to direct the most help to those people who need the most, but at the same time respond to those uh, demands from um, some in the electorate that uh, there needs to be tax cuts and the, the squeezed middle, so-called, needs to get some help. So we will talk about that. And uh, no doubt, um, as Beverly mentions in the chat, there is plenty of weather action at the moment, as you can tell from um, my wet hair, at least. Um, we've been trying to get around Auckland. It's been a, it's a real mess out there. And all up and down the country, well, at least in the North Island, it's been very wet and um, not a fun start to the long weekend. It's going to be a tough, a tough, um, a tough period. So let me just uh, see if we can get Peter on deck there. I'm um, just going to quickly check to see where we are with Peter there. Uh, looks like we've... What's yep, it? I'm here, Ben. Oh, great. 
And you can hear me there, Peter? I can. I can. How are you Brand. doing? How is it? Fantastic. Really Thank you very much. Um, it's really good. We've just introduced the show today. We've got Robert Patman. Yes, I heard on. you do that. Yep. Yep. And um, looking forward to um, having a chat with him and going through and looking ahead for the next week, which is going to be a big one here in our political economy, because on Tuesday, Chris Hipkins is going to probably announce his new cabinet and probably start to announce some of these changes that he suggested since he came on the scene last um, last Sunday, in which he said he was going to rein in some unnecessary projects. And uh, this week, he has been talking to people in the business community. That was his first meeting yesterday to the Auckland Chamber of Commerce and said that he was open to the idea of loosening migration settings, said he thought that uh, the rising tide of economic growth lifts all boats, which is a very uh, 1999 thing to say. Um, and it is uh, going to be a big week uh, in our political economy, not least of which because we get some jobs uh, figures as well. And um, also next week, um, the Federal Reserve will be doing its its thing and we'll get a better sense of what's happening with the economy. Peter, I'm loving your um, shirt action. Uh, I had to take I had to change shirts because I got completely drenched on the way back. I should have taken you yes, off. Yes, because you, you refused to take my umbrella. I know, and I should have. I've got that Wellington thing going on where mm. umbrellas are like a waste of time. But now I'm in Auckland. I should be accepting the umbrella office. Because... Yes, that's right. Well, I gave away some blunt umbrellas for Christmas, and I think we need, and, and we need some carpet merch. Yeah, yeah, no, some kaka merch, I think. Um, I'd love suggestions for kaka merch from our audience. Um, so something useful but stylish um, that you're willing to pay money for. <laughs> pay money for, or you think? Well, they'll... So umbrellas, maybe that's what you need, protection. Quality protection from the weather, the political and economic. Here is the kaka. Yeah, ah, yeah. yeah. So, so if we're going to do a bit of politics then, Bernard, to start before before Robert Patman comes in, mm. what's um, Grant Robertson doing by going list only? Yeah, well, so that was the big news today. Um, he announced he was going list only, um, obviously currently the Wellington Central MP, and the decisions have to be made pretty soon about all these uh, electorate MPs who are there. The reason you might go list only if you were in an electorate is that let's say you lose the election. And you decide, okay, that's the end of my career. I want to get on and do something. You've lost the election. It's um, November of this year, December. And maybe you think, okay, I'm out of here. Uh, I can't really add much value. Um, I'm going to have to go. Well, when you do that, uh, if you're an electorate MP, you have to resign. There has to be a a by-election, it's all very awkward It's and expensive and difficult. So it's much simpler if you think you're going to go sometime before the next election to become a list MP. Also, so is this the end of this, I mean, are we assuming that they've lost the election then already? You know, is this, is, is this an elegant exit for him from politics and that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't quite say it like that. So, for example, Bill English actually did exactly the same thing in the last... Um, few years of his time when he was both finance minister and then prime minister. Uh, he changed from being the um, MP for Southland in that last term. Um, unfortunately, he was replaced by Todd Barclay, and that was unfortunate because um, that proved really difficult, actually, for the mm -hmm. National Party. Um, 
but he went to become a list MP for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if you've got a family and you're in a high-intensity job just being the finance minister or the prime minister, you don't have a lot of time to deal with the electorate. You'll have an electorate agent, but there's still a lot of commitments involved in being a, uh, an electorate MP. So I don't think anyone begrudges him moving to the list. It will open up a potential electorate for some theory high flyer because it's a pretty safe Labour seat, at least at the moment. And uh, if you're being really um, keen, you could use it to engineer a deal. There's been some talk in the past that um, you could do a deal with the Greens if they were close to the 5% mark by giving them Wellington Central. Interestingly, there's also um, a move to the list by Adrian Rurafe, who is the speaker. Now, he is in the... Um, in the Māori electorate uh, near Whanganui. And um, this would mean actually that uh, you'd have to say that Te Pāti Māori are much more likely to win that seat. So they have two electorate seats. And if you were being really, really um, Machiavellian about it, you'd say that Labour could do a secret little um, early deal with Te Pāti Māori to get them on board as a coalition partner by giving him a nod and a wink and doing an Epsom with them um, for that uh, electorate seat. I don't think we've heard anything like that, and certainly no one would admit to it. But, it's uh, going we'll... to be quite difficult to do that relationship with Te Pāti Māori, isn't it? Because Chris Hutkin seems to be somewhat equivocal about some of this, although he'd also put, put his um, finger on it with the co-governance thing about people not knowing what it meant. We've talked a lot about grumpy, keep grumpy yeah. puppy on. I think there's a that's a true phenomenon. Except that it is the case. I'm certain that the, that the government has has done a really poor job of explaining what co-governance actually is and where it's going and justifying it. Yeah, and that was admitted by the prime minister on Sunday, um, where he said that um, <laughs> co-governance had become a bit of a catchphrase, and yeah. he admitted that the government had not done a good job of explaining it. Um, he also pointed out, and I think rightly, that co-governance has been around for quite some time. A lot of the co-governance deals, and they're all a little bit different absolutely. in different places, were actually done by the National Party. And if Many you want a good, them, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you want a good, particularly, particularly that guy. Um, Oh, God. Um, who just came out? Yes, yep. Chris Finlayson was really instrumental yeah. in this. Yeah. And actually, he's done some good explanations and um, reassurances to those in the centre right who say co governance is always bad. And he's pointed out, actually, no, have a good close look at each one. They're all different, they all have a slightly different flavour to them. And um, the world isn't going to end. Um, and well, also, we have an you know, We have. A, I, I think again, the government has. The, I think Winston Peters, weirdly, and I hate to say this, was absolutely right that the government allowed the Heipuapua report to be a kind of um, ticking time bomb. When if they'd come really clean with it and said, "Here's how we intend to implement the various relevant," you know, they the National Party signed up for the Indigenous Rights um, thing at United mm. Nations, and I and I, I take the I take. David Seymour to task somewhat on this bit too, because he talks about, you know, a um, <clears throat> a referendum on the on the Treaty of Waitangi. It's already a treaty, you know. It's already an obligation on this, on the on the Crown, and it's then it becomes how you implement it. And I, and I, I just the government has definitely left a couple of banana skins for itself. Yeah, and I think uh, Chris Hipkins <laughs> is going to try and throw the banana skins away pick them up in mm. front of them and throw them out of the way so that yes, Labour don't... Yes, banana skin analogy, Bernard. Yeah. <laughs> and doesn't slip up, on, slip up on them on the way to the election. 
and hopes that with these bits and pieces cleared away, there is space for Labour to attack National. And um, we got a sense of that this week when we got the inflation figures. And I got a chance to interview Nicola Willis. I included mm-hmm. the interview um, in the... Uh, Did you have a gin and tonic with her? No, it was very much a work conversation about ah. the CPI inflation. And um, got a chance to ask her a few questions about uh, National's criticisms of the government. The broad national criticism of the government is that it's spent too much money, that it has been ill-disciplined, and this has been a factor in the inflation. And um, But it hasn't actually come out and said, uh, here's what we would cut instead. And this is mm. the key mm. thing. Also, National has said, oh, well, for those people who are struggling with inflation, we can help them with a tax cut. Well, let's have a check at what that yeah, tax which is cut a is. Very list, very Liz Trust tactic. That's right. And, and that worked well for her. Yes. <laughs> well, not quite. Uh, in fact, um, the, the version of tax cuts that National suggested last year, which was to get rid of the 39 cent tax rate and to raise the other thresholds, would have delivered most of that benefit to those on middle to higher incomes, particularly the higher incomes. And actually, you could argue, could actually have been inflationary. The key thing to know there about whether tax cuts are inflationary is what the government is doing on the other side of the books and whether or not the net effect is a fiscal loosening. And we won't know that until we hear from uh, uh, National about their overall plans on spending and taxes and what the net result was. And the news, I suppose, I got out of that um, interview with Nicola Willis is that she will come back just before the budget in May uh, with National's views uh, coming with the latest uh, economic information. So obviously mm. you want to hold your, keep your um, powder dry until the very last minute before you come out and say, right, here's what we're cutting and here's what we're spending, yeah. because you can hope that the economy will do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. And we got another sense of that uh, this week when the government came out with its accounts for um the financial year so far, which showed that uh, the economy, remembering that it's growing a lot in nominal terms. Remember, you've got uh, inflation running at 7%. And then on top of that, you've got some real growth of mm-hmm. uh, around maybe 2 3%. So the nominal GDP is growing at, you know, 10% yeah, yeah, yeah. per annum. That's pretty which, impressive. Yeah. We should, we should, well, I should interrupt you because because prof- ah, speaking of Robert. gin tonics, um, <laughs> Professor Pop- Patman has just had one delivered to his ah. to his office, and I and I and I, you know, he's I I, I saw he was on bloody Sean Plunkett's show yesterday. Oh, oh that's great! Yes. A grumpy, a, a, yes, a grumpy yes. old puckie. Oh, Ro- Robert, Robert, hi, Peter. Ha, how are you? Robert how talks are you? to Robert ta- talks to all the rat bags. It's good. Sean's always very nice to me. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Although he um, put me the he put me on the spot about Mr. Putin's ban, so that's ah right. Um, no, it's wonderful to see you, Robert. Really, really good. Uh, Thank you. In particular, because uh, this week has uh, been quite a big week in this, you know, dance of the superpowers mm-hmm. and how to um, do some things to help Ukraine, but hopefully not so much that you provoke Russia. So I'd be curious about your thoughts on this deal that seems to be done in which the Germans agree to hand over 14 of their Leopard 2s and mm. give the green light to a whole bunch of others, Poland, um, 
and others to uh, send the leopards to Ukraine. And then on the other side, um, America has decided to send some Abrams tanks, 30 or so, to Ukraine. Although they didn't seem really keen on it to start with, in part because... Well, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that from the... Yeah. So I, I could, Robert can do the di- diplomacy and I can do the tanky stuff, if you like. Oh, good. About. I'm looking forward to the tanky mm. stuff. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's, a, yeah. there's a little boy in me who quite like reading about all the tech in the kit. Absolutely. But, well, I can, yeah. well, we can, when, when, Robert's, when, when Robert's told us what it all means, um, I know there's a gin and tonic in that bottle, a pseudo bottle of water as well, Robert, <laughs> yeah. but um, when you've told yes, us what it all water. means, I can, I, can ex- <laughs> I can explain how Chobham armour works and how I witnessed the greatest tank battle since um, the Battle of Kursk. But oh. do go ahead, Robert. What do, you, what do you think all this means? Well, I think, first of all, it is very significant, but I think it is... Um, it's part of a longer term development. It's not just a lot of people are depicting this as a, just a German change. I, I think what we've noticed in our discussions over the last you know year or so since the Ukraine conflict has uh, occurred is that there's been a difference of opinion within NATO about how to deal with Mr. Putin. Uh, initially, the Germans, the SPD government, and also the French government preferred some sort of managing Putin solution, whereby he would be given some sort of territory in order to win some peace, a sort of land for peace deal. But um, as the conflict has unfolded, not least because the Ukrainian army has done much, military has done much better than many people expected, Mm -hmm. I think there has been a gradual hardening. And also there's been the appalling behaviour of the Russian army in Ukraine, where it's, you know, suspected war crimes, I think what I call the liberal hawks, they have won the argument, increasingly got the upper hand in the debate Mm. over the so-called realist doves who were quite prepared for Mr. Putin to be handed some territory and expect him not to repeat the performance in the future. I think the view is now that on the basis of what we saw, particularly the successful counteroffensive that we've discussed before in the the last part, uh, sorry, the, the last quarter of last year, I think the view is now within the NATO alliance generally that given the right amount of support, Ukraine can well, you mm. know, do what other lesser powers have done, which is defeat a much more substantial power. And so I, I think that, yeah, I think the Germans have, and they've got a bit of a track record of this, they drag their feet, but they do actually uh, eventually um, align themselves with the majority opinion within the yeah, the NATO well, camp. But I think it's, the other thing we should also understand is the Germans, you know, have been quite some of the criticism in the last week has been a bit over the top because they are the second biggest provider of heavy weaponry mm. after the Americans, irrespective mm. of the Leopard 2 decision. So yeah, I do think there has been this. It's going to be about speed over and time, a period of time. It's going to be about speed and timing, though, as well, isn't it, Robert? Because yeah. it's as far as I can tell, it's a warmer winter than expected so you one might expect a spring offensive from the russians to start earlier and also they're not going to get i mean they, they could get the polish tanks very very quickly but they're not mm. going to get the german tanks for quite a few months it would appear and the, there's some talk that it could almost be the end of the year before the before the abrams get there let alone the challenger tanks from the uk so i mean is, is there an argument here i, I wonder robert where you know this idea of nato fighting to the last ukrainian 
suddenly became quite real. And I, I, I don't I don't accept that it is a proxy war, but no, the, 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 they have to help the Ukrainians make a big push right now, don't they? I think they know that Mr. Putin is in last chance saloon. Uh, the the NATO the the Western countries have become very aware of growing discontent within Russia, which is beginning to manifest itself in quite a sustained fashion. And secondly, they also know um, that Mr. Putin has mobilised, and this is one of the things that's caused the discontent. And they've taken appalling casualties. That's a pattern that's gone on, of course. But it's actually got worse with the mobilised troops because they've replaced often much more battle-hardened troops. So professionalised troops. So, yeah, I mean, I I think you're right about the time. Um, Many people assume in the West that time is on Mr Putin's side. Ukrainians are bracing themselves for this renewed offensive. At Mm. the same time, the the Ukrainians according to their deputy head of intelligence, have their own offensive plans, which centre on Crimea. Mm. Yeah, Mm. it's very interesting. You know, this is the jugular for Mr. Putin. If he loses Crimea, game's over. Don't worry about the rest of the East, because... And they've shown with the attack on the bridge that they can get to Crimea quite effectively. Yeah, and as far as we can see, the Leopard 2s figure very strongly in the push on Crimea. Mm. Shall we talk uh, a little bit about tanks, tanks? Yes, you know, because as David Morrig says, this you know tanks are an offensive weapon rather than a defensive weapon. But if you've got a lot of tanks coming towards you, then I suspect a decent a decent tank, possibly a Challenger two equipped with exploding chobham armor, which has a ceramic um, it explodes out it explodes the armor outward, thus destroying the uh, the rockets before or the missiles before them. But I can tell you that. Um, and this is not to sound like a tanky war story person, but uh, in the first Gulf War, I watched the first, the biggest tank battle since the Battle of Kursk, when the M1s, M1As uh, were lined up um, in the invasion of Kuwait against the Iraqis. And they just went pop, 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 virtually single shot with uh, against the Russian T, against the Russian T-72s that the, um, Iraqis were using because it would and be it ta- a, it, t- tank on tank the same thing. You've got Abrams versus that's right. T-72s, it's, a, it's a charnel yeah. house T seventy twos and and various more modern ones that the Russians are. The other the other problem with the Russian with the T seventy twos and most other Russian tanks is that the crews are sitting on top of their um, ammunition. Mm. The ammunition yeah. curls. It makes them very light. They're, ext- they're they're twenty tons, I think, less uh, less than an Abrams. But they're sitting on sitting on all the exploding stuff, and that's one of the reasons why you've seen so many T seventy twos in Ukraine with the top uh, the, the turret popping off. Because yeah. uh, and and also what I saw in, in in Iraq that you think about this is that the Americans at that point were using a lot of um, spent uranium tipped um, shells, rockets against um, oh, sorry not rock, um, shells really against uh, tanks, and they bore a hole about a sort of two inch hole straight through any amount of metal and then explode inside the tank thus popping the it'll be it'll be an absolutely hideous thing meanwhile the russians have been building um rather or russian troops themselves have been putting sort of scaffolding uh canopies over their tanks which they hope will protect them from these various shoulder launched um uh rockets that the that the that okay. the have been using I found this on the web for his very strong one um so it's a very interesting you know I, i'm just not sure they're going to get there quickly enough the, one other thing robert that i 
a friend of mine in, in the Czech Republic saw recently was there's a there's a tank repair factory which has all the tanks coming in by train from Ukraine, you know, Russian tanks, Ukrainian tanks that have been damaged, being repaired and sent back again at, at a rate that is just phenomenal. So there's, you know, there's quite yeah, a lot but of weaponry. I, you know, I don't think we fro. should overemphasize the time factor because, first of all, the Ukrainians have been secretly training on Leopard mm. 2 in yeah. a number all of right. countries. Is that right? And, in Poland, shown, or? and you know what the Americans keep remarking on? The Ukrainians have shown a remarkable ability yes. to quickly adapt to new technology. Mm. And, and also they, use it in ways that... The Kiwis who trained the Ukrainians have also made this observation that they're remarkably... They have shown ability to adapt very rapidly. And um, the fact that the Ukrainians since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea, have been, if you like, increasingly integrated in the training with NATO forces, yeah, uh, this is paying dividends because they've now got really quality, high quality uh, officer corps in the Ukrainian army, and their mil- their soldiers are very competent and well organised. And it seems to me, yes, the tanks may not come on stream as quickly as they dare ideally like, but they will, I think, deploy them more rapidly than many of us anticipate because they've had preliminary training, and secondly. Um, I think they have a very clear strategy of how they're going to use these tanks, this additional. Mm. They're not just getting additional tanks. You should the, the, the 2.5 billion additional package that the Americans made available to the Ukrainians um, at Ramstein is really um, a qualitative uh, increase mm. in their capabilities. Mm. And the Germans are all and the Swedes and the Finns are already giving. Um, the Ukrainians really impressive heavy artillery mm. and um, we're going to see some really big changes I think shortly on the battlefield as these NATO capabilities began to be used by the Ukrainians and um, it's interesting looking at the reaction from the Kremlin they're so, they're making sort of bravado noises about that they'll just blow away all these Leopard 2 tanks mm. etc but I think it is showing real. I think the Russians are really the Russian leadership under Mr. Putin, and all certainly the propagandists on Russian TV are really rattled by what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, what, what do we say to the? What do we? What do you say to people when? Because I'm sure they said to you as they do to me that this is a NATO proxy war. NATO pushed it pushed itself up against Russia. Uh, got rid of Yanukovych. You know, this is all a conspiracy against Russia. Well, if, if I've heard that Martin Kettle made that point recently in the Guardian, I think it was. I totally, I think that's nonsense because if it was, if the NATO's was involved, then you'd have all the armies deployed straight into the field. It all be over in weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if if that was the case. In fact, um, we've seen a very calibrated attempt by the NATO countries to support Ukraine. Ukraine asked for um, Leopard 2s on the 7th of March, 2022. And it's taken a year. They finally got them. them. Yeah. They've had to demand and scream and they've lost, you know, the Ukrainians are not going to say this publicly, but they've had to lose huge numbers of soldiers. They've had uh, in battles around Bakhmut and Soldar, which they recently lost, in order to really make the case, and also the other thing is, it's only now, one year into the conflict, that NATO countries are making 
high, uh, high quality anti-missile defense batteries like the Patriot system mm. available mm. to the Ukrainians. Well, by God, the Ukrainians have taken some horrendous hits waiting yeah. for those so sort of this capabilities. Is, this is this argument so, that they're fighting to the last Ukrainian, you know, that this is a... Well, I think, as I said earlier, my earlier remarks, I think there has been a shift in the thinking. I think they believe that Putin's now there for the taking. And they it's don't un- believe Putin's nuclear saber-rattling. Why not? I was Owen Matthews has pointed out, and I think you'll be following his stuff, Peter, who, who wrote this book, Overreach. Mm. There's been a lot of discussions privately behind closed doors between the Americans and the Chinese. Oh, and right. uh, I, I think the Chinese have signalled <laughs> two, two things. Firstly, they've told mm. Putin, you can't use nuclear weapons, and that's the end of any alliance with us if you do. Um, and secondly, they said to the Americans, I think they've indicated they've been playing a double game here, um, that they're not going to die in the ditch supporting Putin. Oh, yeah. Do you wonder if now that there seems to be this sort of uh, realisation in the West that the Ukrainians are serious players, if we give them the kit, they're actually going to do a great job with it, mm. that uh, Russia may not have the full support and and uh, isn't going to you know push the very nasty red button uh that um you know it goes more than the tanks i see the ukrainians are now looking for f-16 all sorts of things and i see kissinger came out a week or two ago saying you know what changed his mind you know what (laughs) let's let's let them into nato now yes kissinger's done a u-turn but he didn't one of the things that i found very interesting and i think i suspect you did as well is when Zelensky rounded on kissinger when Kissinger made his early intervention in the war and said, oh, the Ukrainians should give some territory to the Russians. That will end the war. And Zelensky <laughs> was very quick uh, to point out that you must never appease dictatorship. And uh, it was an interesting exchange. I think Zelensky certainly won the public relations battle mm. and um, he's continued to since. But uh, it, uh, it's been fascinating to see these you know, as an academic, there's always been this tension in the study of international relations between those who believe that great powers run the world and that you've always got to privilege them. And we've certainly seen this played out in the early stages of this conflict, this invasion, mm-hmm. where people kept saying, oh, we, we, sorry, we mustn't humiliate um, Mr. Putin. That was the big concern. There was less concern about the victim of aggression. I think that has now switched. I think people have said, well, if Mr. Putin invades a country, he has to live with the consequences. That's his fault. Um, yeah. It was quite an interesting switch there. Fantastic. What should we make of the, what should we make of the, uh, of Zelensky firing, I think, several, seven ministers this week uh, over corruption? You know, this, this, the Americans have talked about corruption in Ukraine. Obviously, we've had the whole Biden saga with his son and everything. You know, Ukraine under both, under both sort of liberal leaders like Zelensky and his, and his, more uh, Moscow-aligned predecessors has been a hotbed of corruption. What it do we has. what do we make what do we make make of him cleaning house now? Well, I think Mr. Put, I think Mr. Zelensky is very keen to deepen the relationship with the EU. He's made it quite clear that's what he wants and NATO, and he knows he has to be seen to be dealing with this sort of corruption. Uh, there is a big problem of corruption in Ukraine, but it's even bigger in Russia. About 20% of Russia's GDP is swallowed up in corruption. And it has very real consequences for the the poor performance of the Russian military. Yeah. 
Um, and, and Robert, what, what, there's a question from one of our uh, terrific regular listeners, David Mooring, who's questioning, asking when, what the implications are for Belarus. You know, Lukashenko's been undecided, but you know, has run these another round of military exercises. He's clearly under pressure. Can you see Belarus taking the risk of coming in in any way? Um, he seems to have wonderful survival instincts, doesn't he, Lukashenko? He's very he ruthless, does. but he also plays Putin quite a bit. Although he may be running out of options now because Putin's getting, I think Putin's facing the most uh, dangerous period he's faced, the most precarious moment probably since he's been in power for the last 22 years. Um, 23 Robert, years. It's really good of you to come on again. We're going to move to New Zealand's inflation. You're welcome to stay, but it's so good of you to do this. And um, we're much Thank nicer you. than Pat, than um, uh, Sean Plunkett. <laughs> okay. And we have discussions about the official cash rate as well. Even yeah. better. <laughs> I may uh, just stay with you for a few minutes, if you don't mind. Yeah, do, yeah. do. And, and it's it's lovely to have Finn Robertson on, uh, who is an economist with the ANZ. And I discover a former student of Professor Patman. Um, it's very good to have you on, Finn. Uh, uh, we're all students of, we're all students true. of Professor it's, Patman it's, in our own it's, way. It's, or or it's, Professor Batman, as, as my as spell check had converted him to in my... <laughs> no, that's what some of the students call me. Oh, yeah. Great. <laughs> they I'll demand to see Bruce. where the, the, the Batmobile is. Yeah, ah, with okay. the gins and tonics. Yeah, yeah. Um, we need the cup holders in the Batmobile for the gins and tonics. Moving on to um, what's happening in the global economy and the local economy. Big week this week with the inflation numbers for the December quarter. You know, for a long time, inflation was something that only um, 90-day bill traders and uh, a few of us uh, monetary policy tragics would watch. But now it's a big political issue. It's the thing that everyone's talking about. Uh, Finn, we got some numbers showing 7.2% annual inflation rate. Um, what um, what about the guts of the numbers, how they went versus expectations, and what do you think it might mean for the, our reserve bank? Yeah, so the, the actual details of the data were a heck of a lot better than we really expected to see. So what we saw in the mix of the data, we like to divide inflation into non-tradables, which is sort of domestically generated stuff, and then there's tradables, which is more about what's going on in the global economy. We actually saw that the non-tradables, the domestic side of things, came in way better than expected. So, for example, the Reserve Bank was expecting non-tradables inflation to accelerate to 7% mm-hmm. from 6.6% previously. And instead of accelerating, it actually stayed flat in the quarter. And so those domestic inflation pressures were looking a lot better than expected. You know, there, there's still some, some pressure in there, but it was really around like oil prices not, not, not flowing through to lower petrol prices quite as much as we thought. Uh, you know, international airfares up a bit more. But in terms of those sort of domestically generated inflation pressures, looking a lot better than expected. Uh, and that's a key reason why we're now thinking that the Reserve Bank might only need to lift the official cash rate by 50 basis points at their February meeting. Yeah. Um, what do you think is going on with the economy that the non-tradables, which is the sticky stuff that the Reserve Bank worries about and thinks it can control, why wasn't it quite as, much, as you know, uh, dangerous or 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 big as the Reserve Bank had worried back in late November? So a big reason for that is really around the housing market and the construction sector. We are finally starting to see some of those construction costs slowing down. They're still going up, but they're just not going up as quickly as as before. And that was a a big reason for for why we saw that quarterly miss on inflation. And also with the sort of extra pressure of, of tourism over the summer, that maybe hasn't flown 
through quite as much as, as the Reserve Bank maybe anticipated as well. So, you know, it was always going to be very uncertain exactly how that flowed through into the headline numbers. And, you know, luckily for us, uh, the, the data just wasn't quite as bad as, as they expected to see. Yeah, so that's um, that's good news on inflation, and uh, interesting to see that uh, one of the big four banks at least cut its very long-term mortgage rate, and we also saw financial markets start to, you know, drag down their expectations about interest rates, and as you say, um, people are now sort of tending towards 50 basis points on February the 23rd rather than 75, and that the peak for interest rates is more likely to be 5% or 5.25% and not the 5.5% that the Reserve Bank was um, suggesting. Um, do you think that the Reserve Bank um, is feeling comfortable at the moment that there was this big gap <laughs> between November the 23rd and February the 22nd? Well, I think they're probably feeling comfortable or more comfortable than they were in November, that's for sure. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. that They've seen these numbers come in below expectations. They basically warned New Zealand, as they said, you either need to cool the jets and stop spending as much, or we need to keep hiking rates aggressively until you stop spending. And so it does look like, you know, to some extent, New Zealanders have heeded that warning. I think, you know, we, we just didn't have much data between now and uh, and the last meeting. So you know, it's hard to say whether having an additional meeting in there would have made much of a difference. But I think, you know, if, I, if I'm a member of the Monetary Policy Committee and I'm looking at what's what's happened over the past couple of weeks, you know, we're still in a bad place with inflation. 7.2% is still unacceptably high. But the, the worst case scenario that they thought that we were going to see just hasn't eventuated. And so I think yeah, yeah, that's a really... Peter here, may I ask you a question about this, which may be slightly out of your out of your wheelhouse, as it were, but people also talk about competition in New Zealand. You know, we, we, we're very, very heavily dependent on uh, two, two gross, dominant, dominant grocery you know, supermarket chains. Um, you know, these domestic factors that are a bit harder to change, trying to create competition in a country of five and a half million is extremely difficult. I mean, are, are there are there these other domestic are there, are there other domestic policy settings that you would uh, consider might might be harder to deploy, but would have a better a, a big long term influence on inflation or the well, cost I'd, of living? I'd, yeah, I mean, it is hard because a lot of the cost pressures that people are facing are genuine marginal cost pressures the things that no matter what the structure of your industry is you kind of can't avoid them you know earlier in 2022 it was the impacts of the russian invasion of ukraine it's been bad weather it's been labor shortages so it, it is hard to sort of say exactly how we could have avoided some of these inflation pressures i think you know when you think about things like the housing market and just how, how crazy that's been i think if you have a market where you've got more responsive supply, where it's easier to build more houses over time rather than having the sudden rush of building over you know the past year or so, those kind of things could help. Uh, but it is hard in, in a small country, and I think that you know an economist would always say if you could have more people entering a market, whether that's you know uh, in supermarkets or any industry, uh, that really at the margin will help. But it. It's hard because those things are structural changes to markets, and, and the problem with, with that, that's a cycle. Drawing you, without drawing you too much into the political side of this, I, I noticed David Seymour. I mean, in fact, funny enough, Nicola Willis was asked about this and did not say what what David Seymour said. Um, David was saying today, Davo, Davy, little Davy, was saying today that um, the uh, minimum wage had risen, I think, twenty five percent over the last five years. 
but productivity had risen only 5%. I mean, there is a wage inflation is not really driving inflation in New Zealand, does it? And, and how do we balance this? This is a huge question, but how do we balance this desire to live like Norwegians, but not pay Norwegian levels of tax? Well, I, I think that that is sort of a bit of a, a contradiction, really. If, if you want, <laughs> if you want really good public services, you do have to pay. You have to pay for them. You know, you can you can try and work on having a, a more efficient public service, but at the end of the day, if you want good quality public services, you know, you've got to pay. I think when it comes to inflation and wages, you know, it is becoming an increasingly important driver of inflation. Maybe over twenty twenty one and into twenty twenty two, a lot of the inflation was sort of supply chain driven and that kind of thing. But now we're seeing because the labour market is so incredibly tight, workers are becoming yeah. they've been a lot more successful at extracting wage gains from from firms, and because all these other costs are going up so much. Uh, that is also meaning that firms don't have quite the same capacity to just absorb higher labour costs than they did before. Uh, you know, minimum wage increases, it's really hard to say in New Zealand whether a higher minimum wage increases yeah. unemployment, reduces job job creation, because we're not like the United States where you have different policies for different states, and so it's really easy to identify That's right. But the experience, but the experience overseas of minimum wages is that you do, I mean, it's, it's not that they destroy, it's a little bit like that debate about, you know, do immigrants take New Zealanders' jobs? The answer is no, they expand the economy. And, you know, we want to be a high-wage economy. Don't we? We, we don't want to be this, I mean, David Farrar, not Farrar, Farrar, the guy from the Taxpayers' Alliance, was tweeting this week or noting this week that, um, you know, a huge percentage of New Zealanders, relatively, are on both benefits and jobs. You know, they're, they're, and you have this in the UK where you people are simply not being paid enough, so they have to be on, on benefits, which means we're subsidising McDonald's and other low-wage employers. Yeah, and, and that is a challenge for New Zealanders. We are a relatively low-wage economy, and we're an economy that's had a ridiculous house price boom over the past couple of years. So yeah. when you think about trying to attract skilled people to New Zealand, you know, that, that's certainly something we have to think about, is actually offering good wages can be a good way of attracting good people. And those people, if they bring critical skills that allow critical industries to operate, that can have quite positive spillovers. And there's some chicken and egg uh, issues there as well in that. Uh, oh, speaking of eggs, Jesus Christ. Oh, you, know, the, you, know, the, you know, the U.S. has a problem with eggs as well. Ah, yeah. And we're apparently... There's four, an egg shortage in the U.S. Yeah. And apparently we're about 400,000 hens short in New Zealand because of this, um, partly because there's of the... There's got cha- to be some puns in there, Bernard. Ah, uh, cracking story. Uh, yeah. Just on that issue well, of global... Well, well apparently, apparently these days, these days you, you not only can't make an omelette, but you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. No. And you can't do a story about eggs without puns in New Zealand. Really. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, Finn, just finally on the issue of the global economy, next week's a big one because we've got the US Federal Reserve with its first decision of 2023. One of the interesting things in financial markets in the last uh, three weeks, the first uh, three weeks of 2023, is that we've we've had a bit of a rally, actually, in the bond markets and stock markets as a whole bunch of um, investors have gone, oh, we might actually have a soft landing and the Fed might not have to hike so much. And, ah, oh, it's been such a good start to 2023. And everyone's assuming that the Fed, therefore, is going to only hike by 25 basis points next week instead of the 50, maybe they were thinking about at the end of last year. Um, what's your feeling about the risks here that uh, maybe there's a few people who got ahead of themselves and the Fed's going to whack them over the head uh, come next week? 
Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a risk. So our, our economists who cover the Fed, you know, they see a 25 basis point hike as well. Uh, but what they don't see is the Fed giving any inclination just yet that we are close to thinking about interest rate cuts over there. So yeah, we have seen inflation in the US drop from a peak of 9.1 last year to 6.5% in December. But we're still seeing, you know, core services inflation remaining strong. The labor market is still really strong over there. So, you know, this idea that markets have where they're pricing in interest rate cuts from sort of the middle of this year, uh, I think that's going to be where we we see some disappointment in there because the Fed's going to come out there, they're going to do their interest rate hike and they're going to say, we are not in a good place yet. Inflation is still six and a half percent. Uh, we need to see that improve significantly. You know, they might be getting close to a peak in the Fed funds rate. You know, we, we see the Fed funds rate peaking at more like 5%. Uh, currently, the ceiling's at four and a half. Uh, but the idea that they're going to be cutting interest rates very soon, unless something unexpected happens in the economy, which has been happening a lot lately, uh, but it seems quite unlikely. So I, th- I think there's a little bit of misplaced optimism there. Robbins- when do you, when, this is a big question, but when are we going to get back to a 2% target? Well, that's the that's the big question, really. I mean, everybody's forecasting that it'll be, you know, 2024, 2025, depending on which country you're looking at, maybe not for Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uncertainty really is, is how fast is that decline? So in New Zealand and the US, we're getting more confident that we've seen the peak in inflation. Um, but, you know, it, it could be several years before we get back to 2% inflation. It depends on yeah. the global dynamics, you know. It's very interesting we, how, how, how we got so used to that you know, within the G7, within the G20, where it was became an OECD thing. One could almost imagine it being dreamt up in the piano bar at Davos, you know, that we just got so used to um, 2% being about it. The irony is that 2% actually came from New Zealand. So that number that got thrown out there. So influential. I know. That number, long time ago, Arthur Grimes, um, uh, David Cagle basically just settled on it without actually doing any sort of, you know, really crunchy Maths. macroeconomic econometric numbers. They put their finger in the air and said, yeah, 2%. How about that? And because we were the first sort of formal inflation targeter, everyone went, oh, they do it 2% New Zealand. Let's do that. And and we've settled on it. And actually, there's a, some proper debates now. Olivia Blanchard, for example, saying, well, maybe it should be 3% or 4%. And certainly if it was 3 or 4%, that would give us all a bit more breathing space to go down there slowly. But New Zealand, we are the champions of 2%. And it's sort of, I wonder if that's actually one of the reasons um, there's a lot of tough talk in New Zealand about getting to 2% and being ahead of the curve on rate hikes, in part because... You know, we were the first, we were the pioneers of inflation targeting. And if even we can't get there, there must be something wrong. Um, we'll we'll see. Finn, thank you very much for coming on. Lovely to have you. It's time now to um, Thanks, uh, jump. Thanks. Time now to jump uh, to Susan St. John, who is uh, a researcher and writer. Uh, let's just jump in here and, and elevate Susan to, uh, here we go, as to, to a panelist. I'd like to welcome on Susan St. John, who is a researcher at the University of Auckland in the area of um, our structure of our benefits, uh, the New Zealand superannuation, 
uh, how our benefit system works with our tax system. I thought it'd be lovely to have Susan on to talk about the current Working for Families review, which the government's been sitting on for a while now, and which is obviously going to play into the government's thinking over the next six months ahead of the budget on how exactly it's going to help out people who need a bit more help to deal with inflation and how it might, if it chooses, uh, decide to return some cash to uh, voters um, in the form of tax cuts or changes in thresholds or something. Susan, lovely to have you on. Thank you very much for being on. I will ask to unmute. She's on mute and so am I. She's just about to... Thank you. Oh, lovely. Lovely I'm now unmuted. (laughs) Lovely to see you. Um, Thanks for having me. That's right. Susan, what do you think is going on inside the government? We don't know, but um, we know there's a review of working for families going on. What do you think the sort of pressures and the the options that they might be looking at and why they've done things or not done things? Well, I'm not quite sure what they've been thinking, but we were promised this review right back at the beginning, 2018, and we've seen virtually nothing. So we've had a review behind closed doors. We know that they've been considering options. We're not quite sure whether they are options in parallel with looking at tax changes or just what. So essentially, the public's been excluded And this really bothers me. And it bothers me that what we might be seeing is some proposition for working for families and tax changes that are then an election policy um, Mm. tool. And we have a a, a fight over that. And we don't actually get anything right now when changes are desperately needed. Could you talk about what the issues are with working for families and what sort of changes you think are necessary to help those who need, need it most? Well, um, we would call it not working for families. (laughs) (laughs) There are just so many things that are wrong, but just briefly, the first thing is that its its name makes you think that it's about working, about paid work, therefore it must be good. And of course, because it's about tax credits, people's eyes glaze over and nobody wants to engage with the nitty gritty detailed. So thank you for asking. The first important thing is to change the name. It should be about the needs of children, not about paid work. Uh, The second thing that needs to change is that the discrimination inherent in it has has to be fixed. If you think about going into the recession that we've been promised, and you think about low income people losing their hours of work, having to go on to a benefit, they lose a substantial proportion of their working for families, which is for Mm. the children. So $72.50 a week and more for larger families. Now, there is no justification, no economist has come up with a justification for having that as a work incentive. And if you think about it, how cruel is it when we face a recession to say to people who lose their job, well, unfortunately, we need to provide you with a work incentive and we're going to do it by cutting your working for families payment for your children so the children will be the ones to suffer. So that's a major, and it is to fix that would be the most cost-effective way of pushing a substantial amount of money into the budgets of the families that need it the most, into those families that are in hardship. We know we've got 
at least 60,000 children in severe hardship, and that is Ministry of Social Development figures, and they're out of date. It's more than that now. And these recommendations have in part come from the Welfare Experts Advisory Group that the government set up and that reported in uh, 2018, and which the government's responded to some of the recommendations, but certainly hasn't gone all the way to uh, increase incomes and reduce some of the um, nastier sanctions and the more perverse uh, um, uh, clawbacks, uh, which are inherent in the in the system. Uh, what what um, what, why do you think the government's been holding back on this? Because it, it seems obvious um, the people who are hurting most from inflation are those with families renting on low incomes, particularly on benefits, and simply extending working for families to all families, including those that technically aren't working, and changing some of these thresholds so that um, the clawbacks don't kick in quite so quickly seemed like a you know obvious thing to do. But I, what do you well, reckon is going on? I think it's the ideology, and it's coming from from the bureaucracy that believes that somehow if you call something a work incentive, it must be a good thing because paid work is a good thing. Mm. I, I think it's as, probably as simple as that. And so when they started the Working for Families review, and we do have some redacted documents obtained under the Official Information Act, we can see that they're starting from the premise that it is about assisting working families. That's one of its prime aims, mm. to encourage paid work. Whereas really the prime aim should be to prevent and alleviate poverty amongst children. Yeah. So I think the ideology is the problem and the lack of vision and the lack of leadership over it. The other things that need to be done to working for families, you mentioned the clawback. We've had a change that did come out of the review that we haven't known much about, but they did make a change in the 2022 um, changes that came in in April, and what they did was they made things worse. Mm. So they did an inflation adjustment, which they were required to do because cumulative inflation had been more than 5%. So there was nothing new or real about that increase. And then they said, well, we've got to pay for it by clawing it back from people when they earn over 42,700. So they increased the rate of abatement, which formerly way back was 20%. They increased it to 27. So it had been each Susan, year we, national. Susan, it's Peter here, but Bernard's theoretical co-host. Are you a fan of the universal basic income idea? And, and aren't we just, just sorry, two questions. Are you a fan of universal basic income? And would it help us avoid these weird accidental poverty traps that we create where no. we claw things back just at the moment when people are climbing out of their of their poverty situation? No, and, and I've written a briefing for the pensions and intergenerational equity hub on, on this one. What we've got is the need to support the old and the young. Both of them need cushions. And what we have for the old is a perfect basic income cushion works really well. You get it unconditionally, you can work, and nobody takes it away from you. You mean the superannuation? I mean New Zealand super. Mm. It's, it's yeah, a, it's a velvet cushion, example. isn't it? It's oh, a, no, it's, it's it, absolutely brilliant. And I'll, I'll, I, yes, I reckon, yes. I reckon yes. that um, New Zealand super is 
um, it's taken me a while to get around to this, but the the um, it's UBI for old people. But- but it's necessary. It's a UBI for old people that yeah. works extremely well. But mm. we must remember that every UBI has to be paid for by higher taxes somewhere else. And in the case of New Zealand Super, if you're on the 39% tax rate, you get less. And that's how basic income should operate. Now, mm. what happens with working for families is that it should be a cushion for all families. If they fall on hard times, they must have it there as a basic income cushion. But we claw it back much, much, much more aggressively than we do for New Zealand super Mm. to the point of absurdity. So that we've got countless examples of families that are earning modest amounts over very low incomes, 42,700. They not only pay tax, they lose working for families at 25%. They lose the accommodation supplement at 25%. They pay back their student loan at 12%. Then they've got ACC. Forget about KiwiSaver. They're not going to be in it. Um, What's the point of those very workers that we depend on in the economy? What's the point of them contributing more in this environment? That threshold of 42,700 has been fixed since 2018. And if you go back in history and you think about what it was 35,000 way, way back, and you think about what it should be today, it should be 52,000 at least. That's just inflation, not even wage-proofing it. And and that, that issue of how unfair working for families is as a cushion compared to the cushion at the other end of the age spectrum is really in, important. And we haven't talked about the accommodation supplement, but which is another one of these issues where... Yeah an old system hasn't been updated for changing prices. Susan, it's wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on. Can we have you on again, Susan, because I'd love to explore this question about dependency and benefits in New Zealand and how hard we make make people at one end work and how easy we make it for some others. Exactly. Yeah. and Accidentally, usually, I'm sure, but... No, sometimes it's deliberate. (laughs) It's criminally neglectful. And that is exactly right. Susan St. John, thank you very much, who is a researcher at the University of Auckland. Wonderful to have you on. And Peter, to finish off the hoon, a slightly bedraggled hoon. We're going to have to professionalise this because I'm not going to drive around Auckland with you buggering up our our podcast again. So we're going to do the skateboarding dog story, which is a really brilliant story because I get so bored Board absolutely rigid with mass killings in America and stuff. I can, I, mm. they shouldn't any anymore be at the top of the news bulletin because they're so ridiculous and we know what the answer is and they're just never going to do anything about it. So excellent story this this week. Dog steps on trigger of rifle, shoots man dead, says Kansas sheriff. <laughs> so a chap was in his pickup truck naturally on a shooting trip, and quotes the back seat contained hunting gear and a rifle. The police statement said, quotes, a canine belonging to the owner of the pickup stepped on the rifle, causing the weapon to discharge. The fired round struck the passenger who died of injuries on on the scene. The police have closed the case. Ah, yes. And I closed my case with you, Bernard. That's right. Thank thank you very much, Peter. Um, I appreciate your patience and the patience of our audience. I will not be out and about in the wet uh, Friday afternoon of Auckland ever again. No, no, you should work. No, it's never going to rain again.
Oh, by the way, by the way, I think we have to congratulate Steve, who says essentially that we now both live in Hoon Bay. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. That that's even. I know better. we're done now. We're completely even, we're toast. That's yep, even we're better. Have, even we're going to have the hoon from the Kaka on blunt umbrellas, and we're going to sell them to in baseball caps, and we're going to sell them to the um, tattooed Lotharios who live in uh, Hoon Bay. Yes, and even Thank better, you. one day we will have the Kaka from the car in Hoon Bay. <laughs> oh, we can do that. Yeah, in the mini. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Peter. Cheers. Catch you. Bye. And thanks. thank you to everyone. Bye-bye.